0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: Earlier in this election campaign, some critics complained there was too little policy to ponder, just bits and pieces proposals being drip-fed through the campaign. But with less than a week to go now, the bulk of it is now out there, though some of those policies have underwhelmed the critics even so. Take climate change, for example, which in the 2017 campaign, Jacinda Ardern proclaimed to be the nuclear-free issue for this generation. In last Tuesday's head-to-head leaders debate, hosted by the press in Christchurch, Judith Collins retorted the dairy factory and power stations were still burning heaps of coal here while Jacinda Ardern talked ambitiously about greening the grid in the future. Jacinda Ardern insisted that climate change was at the centre of all our policy work and commitments during our first term when she released Labour's policy on it the next day but her Green Party counterpart and coalition partner Marama Davidson said the policy was too weak to meet Paris Agreement commitments.
2: We are
0: running out of time and their policy is not going to meet the challenge at the scale it demands. It is not.
1: So is the Greens' climate policy any more comprehensive, or that of any other party for that matter? And where do you go as a voter to weigh up what they're all offering? Hayden Donnell now looks at the efforts the media have made to help us compare and contrast the party's various policies and asks an expert which ones really help and how.
2: With the 2020 general election a week away, New Zealand is again awash in online tools aimed at helping guide voters' decisions. TVNZ's Vote Compass test has already been taken more than 330,000 times. It quizzes aspiring voters on issues like whether we should sell assets or tax the rich, then uses the results to link them with a political party. Massey University's On the Fence works a little differently, asking respondents to use a sliding scale to measure where they sit on various issues. The spin-offs policy employs the novel approach of asking people whether they like parties' actual policies. Those are the big three, but there's also the option of turning to scoops The Dig or more niche voting tools like I side with or Political Compass to direct your voting choice. Most of these tools are useful guides to what parties actually stand for in what has been criticised as a policy-light election. They're also a bid to increase New Zealanders' democratic participation – That's an admirable goal. Nearly 700,000 enrolled voters failed to show up at the polls in the 2017 general election, suggesting widespread disenfranchisement or disengagement with our political system. But these tools have been around in some form for several elections now, and New Zealand's voting stats haven't improved all that much. Some of them have been criticised for their design with Vote Compass coming under fire in a past election, for including the racist question, how much control should Māori have over their own affairs? I asked Dr Lara Greaves, a political scientist at Auckland University, whether these voting tools are worth the media investment and how they could be improved.
0: I think the main thing around voter advice applications, which is what we call them, is that they're meant to reduce what we call the information costs, which is deciding who exactly to vote for, because people don't want their vote to kind of go to waste in any way, and they want to make sure they're really choosing someone that kind of replicates their values and will represent them. And so voter advice applications are there to try to reduce the information costs and ultimately increase voter turnout. The idea of, you know, when we're looking at politics, we're looking a lot of the time at personalities and scandals and what exactly is happening. You know, what Jacinda Ardern wore, mm. like what kind of pillowcase that Clark has, that, that sort of stuff. But like the actual reality is, is we vote for politicians based on policies as well. And voter advice applications are designed for people to sort of be able to explore their policy views across a sort of set lot of questions that are set by the researcher and to then be able to help them locate where their policy preferences are on the political spectrum and where they sit in terms of those policy attitudes in terms of political party
2: preferences. Do you think that people are sometimes surprised by who they actually support?
0: I think that there's been sort of anecdotally a lot of stories of especially sort of Labor voters getting the Greens and those yeah. sorts of things. And that can be quite surprising or shocking for people. I think there's probably different types of people that do the voter advice application. So there's probably a group that are quite already really politically interested. They see them on their Twitter feed or something along those lines, and then they go and do them. And they already know who they're going to vote for, and it becomes kind of like a fun quiz. And then there's for a bunch of people, I think there's, there's another group that are perhaps – quite undecided and they don't necessarily think about politics and then they go to do them and for some of those people I'm sure they will be surprised because we one of the things we know about voter preferences is people tend to be in sort of teams, and those teams that they're in tend to be based on who their parents and who their family voted for. And that's not necessarily because your policies, your policy views align to that, but it's more as sort of like a like, like you would follow a sports club or, or a rugby team, right? So I think for some people who may have not been particularly politically engaged and not necessarily following policies, I think that that is particularly surprising when they might think of themselves as from like a working-class Labour background and then they get another party. So we've seen in terms of Vote Compass... We've seen TVNZ use a lot of the data sort of as quasi-polling. I think in terms of the use of them in the public, is it's for what would probably actually only be a small group of that sort of more undecided voter or people that weren't going to vote. And if they're really unsure about who to vote for, I guess for a lot of those people, it's probably one of multiple factors that contribute to them going and eventually voting. Even the Electoral Commission struggles to get a couple of hundred voters in their non-voter surveys. So it's really hard to kind of have an evidence to, based approach as to whether these voter advice applications are really working. I know there's been international studies that have shown like, yeah, small shifts, like for example, in Canada and others, but generally I don't think of them as a negative thing. Now there's (laughs) been a
2: proliferation of these voting tools. Do you have an opinion on which is the best one?
0: I personally do enjoy on the fence. I like the little sheep logo from way back, but I also kind of I, I like the fact that you can rate things in terms of importance to you. With any of these, the downside really is, is the person or the people who set the questions and who set exactly which policy areas are being, going to be examined and they set the wording of the statement and those sorts of things, there's like a potential disproportionate amount of control flowing through to what the tools end up being. Generally, what happens with these things is they set the key policy issues or criteria for different, different tools. I would say policy is a bit more intense and covers a lot more areas than, say, something like Vote Compass or On the Fence does or even I with does. But basically, someone has to decide at some point in the research process what are the big issues going to be that we're going to actually ask questions on and then how are they going to be formatted or worded as well and that can kind of elicit different opinions in the
2: public. We're talking about question design a little bit there. How important is question design in terms of the usefulness of these tools? I know that Vote Compass actually got in trouble for what was pretty accurately perceived as a racist question, how much control should Maori have over their affairs? How much can these types of questions actually skew the results and end up maybe even disenfranchising people further?
0: Yeah, quite a lot. So if I asked you right now and I said I could could word a statement something along the lines of someone should, if they're suffering from a painful and incurable disease, be able to make the choice to end their own life, okay? If I gave you that statement versus I gave you one along the lines of should we legalise assisted suicide there's been huge differences in surveys over the years and in polls of the way that we can kind of push people into different mm. positions based on the wording of the question.
2: Do any of these quizzes suffer that kind of issue?
0: I think they've generally been pretty good. I think there's always going to be the odd question that doesn't quite work along the lines of the Māori issues. One um, definitely has been one that's been, you know, well-identified in terms of inherent assumptions in the wording of the question sometimes. And again, that relates back to how I was saying that, like, as survey researchers, as pollsters, as voter advice application producers or whatever, we have a lot of power to shape responses, wording a question a certain way, and then reporting on the results of that. I think that that's where, like, say, TVNZ had the capacity to get into a lot of trouble.
2: You mentioned that you like on the fence. I, I do too. It's fun. I, I wonder whether there's sometimes false binaries because if people don't know it, you can kind of rank how important you feel an issue is and and there's two sides Mm. and on one for instance there's how much of the government prioritise the environment rather than the economy? And mm-hmm. then you can go like 60% environment and 40% economy. Uh, is that potentially a problem as well?
0: Yeah, anything around those design, like the, there's potential problems as well across different devices that you're completing it on as well. That's one of the things that we confront in survey research is, oh, that doesn't work on a cell phone, all those sorts of things. In terms of the actual question wording, yeah, that goes back to this idea of when you present something as a binary... That's not necessarily a binary and not necessarily a binary to all people and how people interpret the question is another thing that's really tricky to get
2: around. I found, you know, the environmental, the economy, pick one <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to be just kind of a little bit of an odd yeah. question there. Is is—is it possible to avoid these problems?
0: I don't think it is, unfortunately. I think we have to be careful to always recognise those limitations and, and make them explicit. And, like, whenever media reports on these things or reports, say, vote compass data or there needs to be sort of some disclaimers there, and there often is about, you know, the sample size and those sorts of things. But we need to, like... I think it's part of that general sort of knowledge that the public has around polls as well, where people don't necessarily know how to assess, like, the quality of a tool or the quality of a poll... Um, we see this a lot in terms of people kind of taking a Facebook poll and then using it as equivalent to Mm. a proper scientific phone poll. I think that, yeah, there's always going to be limitations and things that we do.
2: So the spin-off has got the policy tool, which is just actual policies that candidates have submitted and you can fave them and then they give you a pie graph. Is that the way to do it so that you definitely get accurate results?
0: Well, firstly, I really like the blind nature, how you can set it so you can't see which parties because people do have those inbuilt sort of biases towards different parties. So I think that's a real, real positive there. I think, again, it's that binary of liking something or not liking it or and, and the sort of, I think, when where you get that trade-off that I've, that I've talked about in terms of things being simple and quick versus quite detailed is that people potentially need a bit more background knowledge to be able to ra- like look at that many policies. Yeah, yeah, like it
2: feels a little bit maybe <laughs> difficult and remote. It, f- it has all of the right policies. It has all the detail that maybe the others don't. Mm. They can get into generalities, but maybe it feels a little bit too wonkish.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of like I feel as though with Vote Compass, you can skip through it in a minute. Um, yeah. Whereas on the other end, policy, like you almost need to sit down and go, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to rank the policies and figure it out and go into all these different areas, which I think has the potential to lose people's attention, but then also has the potential for people to go more in depth and really think about yeah, policy preferences and research stuff and really think. Or is it more that someone just kind of wants a quick, quick voting fix, you know?
2: So something like Vote Compass, you get your kind of quick sketch of what you might want. There might be a few flaws maybe in your results, but it might be more engaging for a totally disenfranchised voter.
0: Yeah, I would totally say that. And I guess that's all just going to depend on, yeah, the whole reason the person is approaching the tool. So something like Vote Compass, again, it's it's because of the short kind of and then the nature of it, I think, and the quickness altogether of it, I think that's where... It's not clear whether people will get the same result over and over on different days, like that kind of idea. Whereas I think if you sat down and had that more in in depth kind of thinking, engagement with policy positions, that's where you're potentially going to have that better
2: reliability. An advantage of these polls is that they are just comparing policy, there's none of the, you know, personal back and forth. But are they distortionary in that way as well? Because people don't make a political decision in a vacuum. They do consider personalities and what people are like and whether they trust them, and that's not necessarily bad.
0: Yeah, so we repeat. We have a friend who repeatedly gets top in, yeah. in all of these quizzes, and but they won't vote for top um, because ultimately that's the example of, like, there still needs to be the personality or the people that that human voter has a connection with in some way the fact is we've just been through COVID-19 while we're still in COVID-19 politicians had to make decisions like just like that like they had to develop policy I think something like COVID-19 illustrates really well that it isn't just about policy that we need to be able to trust in our leaders and we need to know that they show good judgment sort of the way that leaders have handled scandals Mm -hmm. and the way that leaders might handle a debate I think all of those different things add up and reflect on really who we want as Prime Minister or who we want as our local MP. Have a look at the voter advice application tools. Have a look at things from different organisations that relate to your interests, what they have said. Um, there's, for example, Rainbow Law did a great piece ranking all the parties on um, rainbow issues, basically, and I think that's a really good place to start if that's a community that you're interested in or you know, affiliated with or part of. From those, I think of them as sort of a jumping off point to go and explore the party further, whether it be through yeah, just generally their website, their party website, like a particular candidate's social media or, or, or similar. It's good for people to feel some kind of enthusiasm for who they're voting for.
2: So if you, just lastly, if you could design your perfect uh, voting tool, yeah. what would it look like?
0: They pop up right around an election, right? And I wonder to what extent some of this voter advice stuff can be embedded more in like a continued cycle because we we don't we just we have elections, but actually policy and different political stuffs happening all of the time, not just every three years. So I wonder the extent to which things could be embedded. The real hard decision for a lot of us that are in sort of quantitative research and stuff is length versus detail so something needs to be quite short and needs to be able to capture someone's attention but the trade-off between length and detail is, is quite difficult to reach and that is why I would say little and often would be perhaps a better a better policy on this kind of thing in my dream world although this is like a real millennial perspective is like you could have some kind of app that would pop up on someone's phone being like Hey, what do you think about the zero carbon bill? Like that—that that sort of those sorts of things just pop up and it would be more an integrated part of people's lives rather than just I'm just going to think about policy in in the last two months before the election or whatever it is.
2: Like sweating for an exam.
0: Yeah, the design for democracy. People at, at Massey have done some stuff around this. Is that they're bi-directional, so in some way you express your policy preference in some way and there's some kind of right of response by the politician or the party on the other end to your, you expressing a preference.
1: Lara Greaves, lecturer in New Zealand politics at the University of Auckland, talking there to Hayden Donnell about the efforts some media outlets have made to pick through all the party's policies to help us decide how to cast our votes.